Hello, Barry. How's it going? I'm in a weird mood, Chad. A very, very weird mood. I was telling you offline that I had a very, very strange conversation with what I think is a, is a crazy person over the last two hours. <laughs> and so I come here tonight to sit and record this podcast with my brain a bit of a mush. How are you doing, Chad? No, good. Uh, less of a mush, less of a mush. Um, I'm fairly excited. We've That's got good. a few nice new little jingles to throw into the podcast. Um, we spoke last week a little bit about the teething issues with my new sound card. And now we're actually... We're actually getting there. So Barry even has control of the jingles too. You've got control as oh, well, yes. Barry. It feels good, Chad. It feels good. I can finally bring my wrath to across the pond. I'm excited. <laughs> well, welcome, guys. That's still a banger, Chad. That jingle is still world class. I think it, I think it's great. <laughs> I'm so glad. I, I also constantly get messages from friends and anyone who's listening kind of just saying how, how good the jingle is. It's a good starting point for a podcast. And I'm glad we started on the right note. Anyway, Barry, one of the things we we're chatting about just before we even hit record was, I, I guess, kind of lockdown weight that we may have put on. <laughs> Some gyms have opened the side now in the UK. Um how how jealous does that make you? Dude, it really does make me jealous. But at the same time, I don't know if I have the motivation to go to a gym, even <laughs> if it was open at this at this stage. Yeah. Like you say, we, we're seeing some things in our body we don't like to see. <laughs> and so I certainly need to get my act together and get back on the train again. I think I've been eating a lot of comfort food over the last few yeah. months and it's starting to show. But I am very jealous, Chad, and I'm hoping you're going to get into that gym pretty soon. Yeah, you're not alone. I've also picked up a, a cage or two that I, you know, don't need. Let's put it that way. Um, and yeah, I mean, you're completely right. The gyms have been open for, I think it's been just over a week now, and I haven't gone in myself. I'm frothing to go. But again, I mean, it's one of those where, you know, it's, I guess the concerns of, of catching this thing unnecessarily, um, I've kind of been holding off. But at the same time, I'm, I'm really keen to go. It's just quite a hard thing to juggle. Are you going to go in a hazmat suit, Chad? <laughs> Trying to <laughs> one of those lift weights in, in one of those hazmat suits. Yeah, that could be that could be good fun. I mean, from everything I've heard from all the friends who have been going, I believe they've been really good at keeping things clean, uh, you know, spraying things down. Obviously, they are relying on the users as well a little bit, but, um, you know, they do kind of go through and, and clean as well. They do temperature checks when you enter, all of that good stuff. So, you know, I think I think all the necessary interventions are there, but again, you never know. Yeah, Planet Fitness this side sent us this very strange corporate video chat of their CEO <laughs> talking through the various things they're going to yep. have in place once the government allows them to open. And it's a whole bunch of things. There's stickers all over the place. Half the machines are out of use. There's sanitizers absolutely everywhere. And so there's a lot of new like procedures you're going to have to go through to go to the gym. It's certainly going to be a brand new experience. Yeah, I've seen far too many of those cheesy corporate videos, especially when you've got these <laughs> CEOs, like you say, Barry, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of time not too camera ready. Let's just put it that way. And it does, it just comes across as a little bit cringe. Um, but I, I mean, I guess, you know, the, the heart's in the right place, the sentiment's there for the right reasons. So you uh, can't complain too much. What I liked about this one, Chad, was they got some extras to pretend they were in the gym <laughs> in the background because obviously it's all closed down. Yep. But there were lots of people in the lockers, people were showering, people were gymming. So I don't know how they got all the extras. Maybe all the personal trainers that don't have any clients are sitting and, and playing extras <laughs> in these videos. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, we can talk nonsense all day long, Barry. But let's go and talk about what happened this past week. Let's do it. The week that was... 
Alrighty, so quite a big week, I think, on the on the tech front, Barry. Uh, loads to chat about. Obviously, I think a lot of our listeners are very, very keen on tech. And obviously, it's a passion of yours and mine. And I mean, I'm just frothing to get into some of the tech stuff. We've had some really big stuff happen this week, haven't we? Yeah, definitely. There's been a lot of chat about the big tech companies this week, I think more so than usual. Um, I think that technology is is the villain and the hero in so many of our stories, Chad. And yep. so it dominates the headlines wherever it goes. And like you say, we both love it so much. We both think it's very important and very influential. And so we're going to do a lot of take this episode as per usual, starting with a camera, Chad, which I'm very excited to hear about <laughs> because my camera knowledge is very, very poor. Um, but I believe that Sony came out with their brand new state-of-the-art camera, and I'm excited to hear what you think about it. Yeah, absolutely, Barry. So Sony released their long-awaited A7S III. Now, I say this because... It honestly was that. It was very long awaited. People have been waiting for this camera for three to four years. Every single quarter they kind of got close to thinking this thing would be out. Um, you know, there was some sort of setback and this this camera just hasn't come out in the past. And so what we've seen in this landscape, in this photography landscape over the last uh, couple of months are some really big releases. So we've seen Fujifilm, which is the camera that I went out and bought last week. Very happy with it. Uh, it's the X-T4, which is a little bit of a beast, um, but, you know, reasonably priced and, uh, and you know, it fits, fits well in, in the market and very nice hybrid shooter. We've also then had the likes of Canon releasing the R5 and R6. I think I sent you a link to Peter McKinnon's ultra cinematic video. We've chatted you about did, him before you did. <laughs> on this podcast, the, the king of cinematic video. And yeah, he obviously did the release the promo clip. He's an ambassador himself. But then right hot off the heels of those two releases, we've got Sony with the A7S III. So in terms of the tech specs, obviously, like I said, we, we can go into it. But one of the things that a lot of these camera manufacturers have been having, one of the issues, and one of the issues we've having as we're recording this episode right now, <laughs> is cameras overheating. Now, this is not a phenomenon you've ever heard of before. Yeah, it was a very strange one when your camera just shut down because of overheating. It's certainly nothing I've ever heard of. I've certainly heard of computers that overheat, and that happens semi-regularly sometimes, <laughs> um, especially when I'm trying to run these crazy video editing softwares on my little MacBook Air. Um, but I've never heard of that in cameras. And so when it happened, I was very confused, Chad. So talk me through, like, why does it have so much power, so much comp computation happening in that camera that causes it to overheat? Does anyone know? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of things going on here. I think as cameras have evolved and as, uh, you know, photography, videography has evolved, we're dealing with a lot more data. So these cameras are yeah. capturing an incredible amount of data from these tiny little sensors. And obviously, you know, the body sizes, uh, basically the users are trying to get these bodies as small as possible. Um, and, and so there's a lot of processing that does need to be done to store that data onto those tiny little cards, those tiny little SD cards that we all love to use. And so the other problem that we've got here is compression. So obviously, when you're shooting video and when you're shooting in all of these, uh, I guess, lossless or raw type formats, there's, like I said, loads of data going in. But for that file size to be palatable, I guess, for, for you and me to be able to shoot, you know, long bits of video, ultimately, there's going to have to be some compression that, ha that takes place. And so this little camera, which you haven't seen as a computer in the past, is actually doing all of this encoding and doing all of that stuff while it's shooting this footage and storing that media onto the card. It's pretty magnificent, actually, if you think about it. That actually makes a lot of sense. And that, yeah, that, that doesn't make that is quite impressive. I think that I didn't think about them in that way, but you're right. In order to get these, these, this data off that camera, you don't want to be sitting for hours having to upload stuff to wherever it's got to go. And I think because all these SD cards have standard sizes, they all fit into various adapters, it's very hard yep. to change that storage material, right? Because it's so universally accepted. 
And so I didn't think about it like that, but that's a great point. Um, unfortunately, though, Chad, if you're out with your camera and you need to get some shots and you're like in the middle of something important, you really don't want that thing dying on you. So <laughs> exactly. it's not a good sign if cameras are <laughs> overheating. I don't think it's good for the branding. And when there's such brand loyalists in the camera world, like the Fuji guys don't yep. talk to the Canon guys, you don't talk to the Sony guys, <laughs> you don't want to be losing customers because of something like that. Yeah, you're completely, completely right. And I honestly think that heating could have been one of the reasons why they held back on this release. And everything that I've seen about this camera so far points to this not being an issue. Now, a lot of people who looked at the Canon when it was released, which was, you know, also has some insane specs for videographers, overheating was a huge problem. Huge, huge problem. If you have a little search on YouTube, there are tons of videos of people complaining about that. And I don't think that this has been an issue. So it seems like Sony held back on this. And I, to be honest, in my mind, I think they've released this at the perfect time, especially when you've got all of these other competitors who are throwing out, you know, insane, insane cameras at this time. So just in terms of the little specs, um, just to touch on that, we, we spoke in jest, Barry, about 16K now, just now. Um, this doesn't shoot in 16K, but it does shoot in, uh, in 4K at 120 frames per second. Now, if you, if you are new to the world of 4K or if you've never shot in 4K, that's crazy. That's truly crazy. My old camera, the X-T30, was able to shoot uh, in full HD, which is 1080p. I guess what you know, the majority of broadcasting is now based on. Um, but yeah, ultimately, 4K is four times that resolution. And obviously, uh, 120 frames per second, is, is, you're slowing that footage down fivefold. Um, essentially, what these cameras are now also doing is if you lower that resolution to full HD, you can slow it down tenfold. Um, so for all those guys who love their slow-mo footage, uh, I'm certainly one of them. Um, this is a great, great, great release on that front. But obviously, the pricing is is pretty hefty, pretty, pretty high, which is obviously why I went for the one that I did. Interesting to note, though, Barry, is that if you take stills on this camera, it only records stills up to a resolution of 12 megapixels. Now, how many phones ago were you able to shoot at that resolution on your phone? <laughs> that is very strange, Chad. Are you saying this is like optimized for video makers? Yep. Is, that, is that what you're saying to me? Because that makes a lot of sense in today's world where everyone and their aunt is trying to become a YouTuber and a <laughs> blogger and all that good stuff, right? And when the phones can take such good cameras already, it kind of makes sense maybe to have a more video-focused um, external camera. Does that make sense to you? 100%, absolutely. And that's exactly what it is. It's optimized for video. Um, Sony also, for a while, have had the you know leg up on the autofocus system as well. So when you talk about YouTube and people who, I guess, you know don't want to spend hours on getting these very, very thought out, you know, pulling focus type shots, the autofocus is on point, the resolution is on point, et cetera, et cetera, which is, I think, why a lot of people are flocking to this. Um, but I mean, just an interesting one for me, if you just look at the story, I guess, on a brand that has had and has been kind of teasing a product, but it obviously just not been ready. And I kind of wonder whether we're going to get there with the, the Cybertruck or something like that. I was about to say, it sounds exactly like a <laughs> Tesla release schedule where they promise this amazing thing and then extend it by quarter by quarter by quarter until it's ready. Yep. So it's, it's a great point. I think that it's the right way to do it though, unfortunately. Yep. Like in yep. today's world, you don't want to ship a product and then find out a few weeks in that it's not working as you, as you intended to because then the media will crucify you. So rather take your time, rather make sure it's good because then the, then the media will forgive you if, if the product is good. Absolutely. And so time will tell. We'll have to watch for the reviews of this as it goes out into the wild. And we'll have to see, Chad, if you're happy with the purchase that you made versus the new Sony. Well, I've only shot with it for one day, but Barry, this thing <laughs> is 
amazing. So it, it, it is a bit of a beast. It is much bigger. It's got quite a bit of more heft than the one that I had before. So for those watching on YouTube, this is it. Um, it is it's pretty big. <laughs> Barry testing out the new jingle system there. Got to love it. And uh, I'm sure you're having a nice chuckle while you're listening to this as well. Um, but yes, I'm oh, very, very fun. pleased. Um, I actually released a nice little clip on my YouTube of, uh, it's kind of like a video portrait. Um, so shot with um, a wonderful model by the name of Andrea. So definitely go and check that out as well. Uh, but I'm loving it. And I think it's, uh, I think it's a great, great buy. Reasonable. Um, and, you know, at the moment, bang for buck in terms of what you're getting out for it. A great, great buy. That's awesome, Chad. I can't wait to see what you make of it. And uh, I know we'll be sharing lots of cool stuff from it in the future here on Across the Pond. Yeah. Let's move on to Garmin, Chad. Garmin has had a rough week or two. <laughs> I think that they've, they've had this, this, this giant outage that's kind of hit their whole system. And I believe it's related to some sort of cyber attack. Um, and that's what makes it a bit strange. But talking about the Twitter hack that happened last or two yep. weeks ago now, um, it's kind of in the same sort of ballpark. So, of course, all the active world, the, the runners and the triathletes and all that use Garmin. They rely on that data when they go out to cycle or swim or run or whatever. And without that data, it kind of, it does hurt people, I think. People get yeah. very angry. I've seen lots of Vitality members here in South Africa complaining they can't get their free smoothies and Discovery <laughs> had to come out and make a statement and it caused a big furore over here. Oh, um, but it's one of those things where, again, the data, if it's compromised and it gets in the wrong hands, can be very valuable to hackers or be valuable to attackers and uh, so it's one of those things chad where a company and company and company keep getting hacked it feels like it's just inevitable that every single company is going to go through something like this it is crazy and uh, i was involved in that so i've got a, a garmin watch myself i've got the phoenix uh, 5 i think and uh, i was actually involved in a, in a step challenge with my work so essentially how it normally works is you obviously link your like Garmin app with whatever the other app is and it automatically syncs, right? As soon as you take your phone up, your, sync, your steps yeah. just sync without even having to do anything. And uh, yeah, I mean, I have basically for the last week have had to manually upload my steps and it has been a nightmare, Barry. Um, but yes, I, I think in terms of these hacks, I, I, I certainly think it's, it's, we're going to be seeing more of this kind of news and uh, it really is concerning. I think the interesting like murmurs that I heard was basically... Did Garmin pay a bribe? They haven't really spoken a heck of a lot on this hack. Sure. Um, and ultimately, they're back up and running again. So did they pay some kind of ransom? I don't know. Yeah, it's a very strange one. We'll have to wait and see what comes out in the media and if they can dig out some of the truth behind all of this stuff. But glad to hear that it's all back up and running. Chad, I've got a question for you, though. Like, I want to find out if I'm a bit of a weirdo on this side. <laughs> when I go running, right, I, I always wear my Apple Watch to track my run. Yep. If I don't have my watch and I run without tracking it... <laughs> It doesn't feel real to me. It almost yeah. feels like, what's the point? I, I'm so tied into those stats and knowing how fast I ran and like be able to track distance and whatnot that if I forget my watch at home, a big part of me wants to just turn around and go back home again. Do you Absolutely. feel the same thing? 100%. I think as soon as you get a fitness tracker, if it's not tracked, it's like not done. It's one of those things as well where you have... You know, now these social networks, Strava is the one that I'm talking about, where you, you yep. want to go up and share your run. You want to go up and, I don't know, get a bit of encouragement from your circle of friends. And you're probably right, Barry. It probably is a little bit silly for all of the I don't know, <laughs> old schoolers out there who are able to just go around for a run based on feel, very much on feel, kind of just revel in endorphins afterwards rather than looking at stats and trying to get uh, pleasure that way. Um, but yes, I am just like you, Barry. You are most certainly not alone. I actually had one of those moments a couple of days ago, Chad, where I went and did a nice run and tracked the whole run and got back into my car. And for some reason, I thought I clicked finish on my Strava, but I hadn't. And so the thing kept uh. running. 
And so <laughs> I've driven the whole way home. From the- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love this new soundboard so much. Oh, that's great. So that's exactly how I felt, Chad, because by the time I got home, I looked at my stats and it looked like I'd run crazy fast, like as fast as a car on the last few Ks home. (laughs) And so I had to throw away that whole piece of tracking because obviously it wasn't realistic. I wasn't going to put it on my Strava and said I'd run at two minutes a K. And so basically I ended up having to throw away that whole workout and I was actively frustrated, even though I'd actually done the work. I should have been happy that I'd actually got out there and got the run in. But because I couldn't share it on my Strava, all of a sudden I felt like terrible about it. <laughs> I want to make you feel a little bit better, Barry, because Please. I mean, I, I completely agree. And, I, you know, you, that was a wasted workout. I get you. I get you. I, when I was doing my half Ironman last year, had it on triathlon mode, which I'd never, ever tried before on my Garmin. And uh, there was a lock feature, one that I will certainly be using in the future. But nevertheless, <laughs> I, uh, I had it on this triathlon mode. And, and essentially, there's one button that you need to push to, to toggle it from, you know, next stage to next stage. So you do your swim, hit toggle, then all of a sudden it goes into your transition zone, hit toggle again, then it goes into your cycle. You get the story. So I'm, I'm busy on my cycle and so far working, working well. Obviously in the water, you know, no one knocked me. It was all good in the transition zone. Happy days. But now I'm in my cycle. And I go and grab a banana that's sitting right behind my back for some fueling. (laughs) And what do I do? I knock it into the next transition zone. And I'm like at the right at the beginning of my ride. Um, So, yes, I get the frustration. (laughs) 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 On that one, um, you know, I was completely, completely, completely bummed about it. um, Because, you know, it's just one of those where it's, it's such a big race and you... Ultimately, it's being tracked. It's being professionally tracked. They've got their like uh, courts, you know, proper, proper tracking systems to the split second. But no, I'm going to rely on my Garmin and I want to have my Garmin, (laughs) Um, which is, yeah, one of those. It does make me feel a lot better. Thank you very much, Chad. I I think for all of us out there, fitness fanatics, keep doing your thing. Keep running, even without the watch, even if Garmin doesn't work, because it's worth it to get out there and get in some sun. But I I totally get it, Chad. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, those fitness fanatics are going to be, I suppose, able to eat as much as they want, guilt-free. That's the one great thing about exercise. You can come home knowing you've burnt a certain amount of calories and you can actually eat out, eat a little bit unhealthy without any guilt. Now, on this topic, I saw a bit of an announcement from the government this week, Barry, a scheme that is called Eat Out to Help Out. And obviously, as uh, the lockdown has eased and as you know, we're trying to get the economy up and running. Loads of restaurants are struggling to actually get people through the door. A lot of people are still concerned about their safety. We've chatted a bit about it on the podcast before as well. And so essentially what the scheme is doing, and this is going to, again, a little bit of a brag on my side um, because I'm very excited about it. <laughs> but the government are going to pay 50% of your bill, ultimately, up to a maximum of £10 per person um, wow. for a whole month. How amazing is that? Almost 200 rand for you, Barry, maybe more than 200 rand uh, per meal, per head, the government are going to give you just to try and get you into a restaurant. That's like free food, Chad. <laughs> Basically, the government is handing out free f- free restaurant quality food. Yeah. We're not talking like mass produced stuff. We're talking about restaurant quality food. That is very, 
I, I feel very jealous this side, Chad. <laughs> On this side, restaurants are just fighting to be able to serve you wine with their meal, never mind subsidizing the actual cost of the meal. Yep. Um, so that sounds like a really interesting campaign. Where are they getting the money from this, Chad? Like, it's, does the UK just have like bottomless <laughs> pockets? Yeah, so I mean, I think they're easing off on some of their other funding that they've previously had. I saw some changes happen to the government's furlough scheme. So what that was, was I guess the government were basically paying the salary bill of uh, employers for those people who were kind of put out of work. So as long as they remained in employment, they were not allowed to actually go to work, but the government paid, I suppose, 80% of, up to 80% of their salaries. Um, so I guess now they've got a little bit of extra funding for this. And I mean, to try and get people into restaurants, what better way to do it to actually subsidize the meals? Ultimately, throw money right into the hands of the consumer. You're not giving money to the restaurants. You're not just, I don't know, just putting out a grant, kind of getting reliance on that grant. But ultimately, what you're doing is directly, directly increasing the, the revenue, increasing the footfall. Um, and I think it's just such a great scheme. They've obviously limited it to one month and only certain restaurants that are eligible. Um, but I mean, for instance, Barry, the last time you were in London, uh, we went for a nice meal at Wagamama's. That applies. That's really cool, Chad, especially in London, because I know London, the cost of eating out at a restaurant is very, yeah. very high compared to the relative cost of eating out here in South Africa. Um, I know when I went to visit you guys in London, I was blown away by how much it costs to sit down and have a, a simple meal in a restaurant. Yep. So I think it makes a lot of sense. And I, I like the way you frame that. Like the way that the money is being dispersed is is not so much a grant, but it's kind of a real economic yep. kind of substance that helps this, re this industry get back on its feet. Um, I think a lot of restaurants have gone out of business in this period. A lot of, a lot of restaurants are hanging on by a thread. And so if this can save 10, 20, 30% of the restaurants that are really struggling right now, then it makes all the sense in the world. And of yeah. course, keeping people in jobs, keeping people going, getting the economy going again, and also getting people into those restaurants so that we can like, get the morale up and get, yeah. to get things back to normal. I think that's really important. So, Chad, I'm excited to see where you go with your 50% off of food. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not going to be a good month for, for the calorie front. Um, but yeah, <laughs> a good month for, for I suppose, enjoyment, um, which is important too. Definitely. Chad, should we move on to the, the big tech CEOs who yeah. got called in for a scolding in the headmaster's office this week? <laughs> um, the big four guys, that, that probably the four most successful companies in history, I'd argue, yep. Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. The CEOs, uh, Mr. Jeff Bezos, Mr. Mark Zuckerberg, Mr. Tim Cook, and our good friend, Mr. Sundar Pichai, <laughs> all got pulled into the, the Congress this week um, in front of what I believe was a House Judiciary Committee. Okay. And this, this committee was trying to figure out, or investigating at least, whether these four major tech companies have got some sort of monopoly power that needs to be broken up or regulated. Right. Now, this is a conversation we've been having since the beginning of this podcast, Chad, about these companies having this immense power around the world. They've, they've grown these huge monopolies. Google's got like a 90% plus market share. Apple's got a huge market share in that space and they control a lot of the app ecosystem. Amazon, of course, control most of e-commerce. And then Facebook basically feel like they control the world at this point. <laughs> and so it's one of those things where all these companies have become so big, they have they're impacting not only their own companies, but politics, democracy, labor law. Like it, it really is touching every single part yeah. of the world. And this Congress was, was coming together to try and figure out, is this good for society? And I think we all agree it's probably not a great idea. Yeah. And number two, if that's the case, how do we fix things? Now, we've seen in the past, Chad, when some U.S. representatives and some Senate people come and talk to these, these, these tech gurus, these guys have been really successful, 
that sometimes they don't quite know enough about the internet to have a real conversation, right? There's been yep. some real bloopers in the past where they ask some really silly questions. But having watched some of the summaries and having looked at what this particular committee did, I think they were a lot better than in the previous okay. cases. I think they had their ducks in a row. For a large part, they knew what they were talking about and really put these guys under the sword. Right. And so we're going to get to some of the points now, but but to start off with, I think that this is the very start of real regulation coming into the space, and it's going to change the tech world forever, in my opinion. I think it's really important, and obviously we saw Zuckerberg already doing that. I'm very, very keen to see the kinds of questions uh, that were posed, so keen to hear your, I guess, thoughts on that front. Um, but you're right, I mean, these four institutions by themselves have really a stranglehold on social conversation, social dialogue, and, uh, and have an insane amount of influence on what we think, which is obviously a lot of power to give to these kinds of organizations. But just before you even get into it, Barry, I do want to say congrats uh, for pronouncing Sundar Pichai's name. Well yes. done. <laughs> Thank you, Chad. Yeah, it's, it, it really feels good to be able to pronounce his name right. That was one of my all-time favorite moments of the podcast. So a throwback to our, our, our old listeners who were there from the beginning. We yeah. appreciate you guys. But moving on to some of the substance of this hearing. So, of course, these four guys are all in different spheres, right? They do different things. But what this committee was trying to do was trying to point to some of the parallels between them and how they make monopolies in order to prove some sort of point. And so that's why it's interesting to have these four CEOs uh, testifying at exactly the same time. What I find quite funny, Chad, was that all of the congressmen were in person in the actual, in the state room with their right. masks and the sanitizers and whatnot, <laughs> whereas the four CEOs were all testifying via Zoom, basically, from virtually from their office or their home, wherever they were. So it was an interesting kind of, it really felt like tech versus the, the legal system in a way. It was a very interesting kind of a debate there. But let's talk through some of the points and we'll go company by company and hopefully you'll be able to see some of the patterns that the congressmen were trying to figure out. Let's start with Apple. Apple, Tim Cook is the CEO of Apple. He's come under a lot of fire trying to replace Steve Jobs, of course, which is an yep. impossible task, but he's done a decently good job and Apple have continued to soar and soar and soar to heights we never could have imagined. And of course, they compete in the smartphone market, which is very competitive. So there's lots of smartphone manufacturers these days all making really, really good phones. So the Apple iPhone still holds its regard as a very high status and high premium phone. And it, it maintains a large market share, but not the dominant market share. Android phones are way more affordable and therefore way more ubiquitous around the world. So the monopoly here isn't the phones themselves, but it talks to the App Store on Apple. Yeah. So we've chatted about this a few weeks ago, yeah. talking about how if you want to be on, on the App Store on Apple and you want to sell apps to Apple customers, you are forced to pay either a 15% or a 30% commission on every single paid Apple subscription that you provide. And so the Congress was trying to figure out from these guys, do they think that's a fair figure, first of all? Yep. And what are the rules for being able to get onto the store? Because they don't really publish them. It's kind of this and that. There's a lot of inconsistencies in that case. And the Congress was trying to get Tim Cook to admit to the fact that Apple just basically choose whatever they want. And if they see an app that's doing really well, they'll build their own in-house competitor to compete with that app. Oh, wow. And so it's another example of this closed ecosystem that Apple has built. Is it anti-competitive? Because if you if you don't know how to get into that ecosystem, if Apple just controls the reins and the vast majority of developers are trying to develop for Apple, um, does it result in an anti-competitive environment that's not fair? So what yeah. do you think about that, Chad? Yeah, it's a crucial one, especially because of that closed ecosystem and the fact that they do control the barriers to entry, the fact that those barriers are not visible it is crucial. 
to a little degree, though, in my mind, I think it is that kind of lack of competition is slightly limited by, I guess, the market, the open market there. People who own Apple phones will shout loud enough for an app that they demand. And so for me, I think Apple do have their hands tied slightly. But whether that degree of, you know, their hands being tied is enough to prevent them from I suppose reducing, you know, free the free market, free competition. Um, I guess it's an interesting discussion to have, and I suppose I'd be interested to see what uh, Tim Cook has to say in in that regard. Yeah, I agree. I I, I personally found the the argument a little bit weak from their side. Yeah. Um, Tim Cook kind of responded by saying that the fact that they created that app store where nothing none existed before created this huge ecosystem that allowed developers to actually make money for what they built. Yeah. So if you think about it, when the dawn of the iPhone arrived, apps weren't really a thing, right? They weren't really something you could really make a career out of. Yeah. And because of Apple's ecosystem, because of how they got iPhones all around the world, because of how they changed the way we thought about smartphones, Apple created that ecosystem and, and Tim Cook called it an economic miracle. <laughs> wow. by, by growing a brand new industry. I thought it was a bit of a strong term, but he used it. And it's one of those things where Apple are saying that they've created this ginormous ecosystem and the nature of capitalism is when you provide value like that, you should be rewarded for it, right? right? That's the whole idea. And so me as an iPhone user right now, I can go on and choose from literally hundreds of thousands of different apps that I can use for a variety of different use uses. And that's great for me as a consumer. And I think where they need to figure it out is what is that right commission level and can they make those rules more transparent? So at least you know, okay, cool. If I want to get yep. into the Apple App Store, this is what I have to meet. These are the kind of requirements. These are sort of some of the criteria. Because Apple will say they, they're doing it for the sake of the user to make sure that it works, that there's never any viruses, that there's no privacy concerns, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So they want to vet every single thing that comes onto that store, which is all great and well, but you have to, they have to be transparent enough, in my opinion, to show that they are actually being equal and treating every developer the same. You can't just pay lip service to it. You've got to actually yeah. show people that you are treating every single developer the same, and if you meet the criteria, if you meet the bar that Apple sets, wherever that bar is set, then you'll get into the App Store. Yes, absolutely, Barry. I, especially when it comes to in-app purchases. That's, I guess, one of the categories that for a long time has been tricky to see who gets to do it, who, who doesn't. In terms of him creating this uh, economic miracle that you dubbed, um, <laughs> I suppose that is interesting. But if you do think about the, I guess, basis with which the App Store has been set up on is iOS, which is an Apple-developed operating system. And so iOS, I guess, has gone one step further in that they've actually provided developers with tools. And from what seems like, I suppose, fairly intuitive ways of developing apps. And so I guess there's, you know, there definitely are arguments on both sides of the coin here. Uh, but definitely an interesting discussion, one that we should monitor into the future. Yeah, I think so. I think Apple are probably in the best possible position out of the four. Like, I think that's why we started with them because it gets a bit more murky as we go right. down. But Apple's certainly on a decent right. position. We'll have to wait and see what the committee says based on them. Let's move on to the robot himself, Mr. Mark Zuckerberg, who may or may not be amphibian, may or may not be a robot himself. <laughs> uh, of course, the CEO of Facebook, um, the villain in a lot of people's stories. And uh, they kind of, they pulled him up on two different topics, Chad. The first one is looking at content moderation on their platform. We've seen a lot of stuff about interfering with elections and lots of like hate speech stuff and uh, maybe censoring conservative voices and lots of allegations about what happens on Facebook. And of course, they are at such a scale round right now where they have like 2 billion users or something stupid and they have a, a kind of scale that's very, very hard to moderate the content. And so there are a lot of questions about that. How do they do it? What kind of responsibilities should they have? What ethical 
like space should they be in? Are they a publisher or are they just a platform like Mark wants to try and like present? Or do they have some right. sort of moral responsibility as to what happens on that platform? And it's such a nuanced debate, one we've touched a number of times in the podcast, so I don't think I want to get into it in great detail tonight. Yeah, But yeah. it's one of those things that keeps coming up again and again and again, and no one quite knows what the answer is. There has never been a company in history that has had this sort of power over information dissemination, right? And, and, and in that sense, it's very hard to regulate something when you've got nothing to look back on. No one quite knows what the right answer is, and all I can say is that I think regulation is coming, but... I wouldn't be able to tell you where to start, Chad. Yes, 100%, Barry. And like you said, we've chatted, I think, quite extensively on some of those key points. Um, so let's definitely get into the more juicy stuff. Yeah, so the more, more important one, I think, was how they purchase competitors, right? So we've seen them in the past go out and purchase Instagram, yep. go out and purchase WhatsApp, and copy Snapchat yep. features and that sort of thing. So that, that sort of behavior comes across as anti-competitive. When you have a giant right. company like that that's going out and buying these high-profile competitors and kind of integrating into their own platform, all of a sudden they control all of the big messaging apps and social networking apps around the world. And that's what the committee is very worried about when it comes to Facebook, is that do they control too many of these kind of big platforms? Instagram has become a behemoth, right? Messenger is very, very popular around the world, and Facebook, of course, is that is that bread and butter. And so a lot of questions about did Facebook threaten founders to copy their, their products unless they let them buy them out? The Instagram founders, after the big acquisition, came out and kind of spoke quite openly about the fact that they felt that because Facebook were, were so powerful and were able to copy features so easily, if they didn't sell Instagram to Facebook, Facebook would just build a clone and just compete directly and just kind of destroy them right. by pure scale. And so they felt they had no other choice other than to sell to Facebook to at least realize some of their profits, right? And obviously they sold for a billion dollars and now it must be worth 100x that or something crazy, Absolutely. right? And so I think a lot of these decisions are of are in a very, very gray area when it comes to this, this stuff. I think Facebook are probably in the worst position of the four because of this kind of anti-competitive behavior. And they simply have too much power at this stage, Chad. So a lot of difficult questions for Zuckerberg. He used all the media training he could to kind of dodge and dodge and duck and weave and do whatever <laughs> he could. But I think Facebook, in my opinion, is too big and is kind of, it has this moral responsibility that it's not really enacting because it wants to remain a platform. And so I think there's lots of changes to come, especially in the Facebook world, Chad. Really interesting, especially when we talk about acquisitions. And I mean, I know certainly of, uh, you know, South African legislation, the Competition Commission, all of that kind of stuff. At the time of purchase, there's loads of hoops that you need to jump through. So for me, it is interesting that this is kind of being brought up because I would have thought on a transaction by transaction basis, they would have kind of, you know, crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. Um, but obviously not. I suppose obviously there is a bit of a wider conversation as to, I guess, their, their overall approach and um, maybe even the spirit of the Facebook giant. Yeah, it's hard to say because no one quite knows how those deals were done. And we have to remember that when they bought Instagram, it wasn't a guaranteed success back then, right? So it's hard to say that yep. they knew it was going to be some big thing. So Mark Zuckerberg's main kind of argument was that we bought it when it was a fledgling young startup and we turned it into whatever it became. So like we used right. our own, we didn't just buy it outright and kind of, it was already a success. So that's kind of a, I see his points, but at the same time, it, it, it was doing really well and it was a direct competitor at that stage. And so the question is, like you say, Chad, whether, whether they did it rightly or wrongly, like that's in the past now, now they own all this stuff. What does the American government do? And do they think that it's worth breaking Facebook up? Because there's a lot of talk yep. about forcing them to break it up. So at least they have more people okay. to compete against each other so that they can try and have more people thinking about this and give consumers a choice. 
At the moment, if you want to be involved in the social internet today, you cannot avoid Facebook. You simply can't, right? You can't. There's no other competitors to go to. So if you don't like the way they're treating your data, if you don't like what they're doing with elections, you can't avoid them. And maybe that's a mistake, and maybe that's something we need to rectify. So how do they break it up, Barry? Do they, I guess, just have like re- like heads or CEOs of each different business, and ultimately it grows up in the same group? Um, also, ultimately, once you have developed this thing into a massive giant that they have done now with the case study of Instagram, how on earth are Instagram going to be able to you know buy it back, buy those shares back? Yeah, Chad, that's where it gets difficult. I've got no idea. I mean, I think a lot of this is kind of the very first steps. This is the easy stuff to say, cool, we must break it up. But like you say, when it actually comes to like, how do you do it practically? Um, it's very, very difficult, especially when there's so many shareholders that rely on these big tech giants for their returns yeah. every single year. I mean, these four companies basically dominate the US stock market. And if you're buying the US stock market, you're basically buying big tech. And so to break these things up, you might lose some of the value of that synchronicity and, and, and some, of those, some of those things that comes with them being bundled in the same organization. And I have no idea where you would start. This is certainly not going to be an overnight thing. I think this is going to be a conversation for the next few years at least as they figure out how do they break it up if they do break it up. Really, really very interesting. I'd be fascinated to see, I, I suppose, some of the ideas that get thrown at the table there because um, that's certainly not going to be an easy one. Now, let's move on to the next one. Let's move on to Amazon, the uh, giant that I love, especially because <laughs> I you know, am, am able to use them. I know not really very accessible to you there in South Africa, Barry, especially with the import tariffs that come with uh, importing oh, yes. stuff. I have used Amazon in the past while I was in South Africa and ended up paying more than the value of the goods on just you know being able to actually import it in, in, in tariffs and that kind of stuff. But nevertheless, let's chat about Amazon. What are the main concerns there? Yeah, so the main concern with Amazon is, is do they have too much of a control over online sales in general? So if you think about it, Amazon is, is, is the bread and butter for, for online sales across the world. They have a huge market share. But more than that, they kind of control the third-party sellers as well. If you're a small business and you're selling your products over Amazon, you're using their infrastructure to reach the customers, yeah. right? So when you go into Amazon, Chad, you, you'll see a range of sellers who are all selling different products and they kind of compete on that basis. So the charge laid at Amazon is that apparently or allegedly what they do is that they'll use the data from those third-party sellers and identify products where they can create their own house brand where they can undercut those guys and, and drown right. them out of the market. So we've seen a lot of allegations of Amazon-based products that are coming onto that store at a lower price and just kicking the small businesses' butts because they have the scale to do it at a much lower price. And as a consumer, we none the wiser. We just pick the one that has the lowest price for a lot of cases. And so that's kind of the yep. charge laid against them, is that are they being anti-competitive by using that data that should be necessarily private, I would think, and using that to figure out what is their house brand products going to be and then undercutting them at, as they go. There was a huge drama about 10 years ago with a company called diapers.com, which sold nappies, right? And nappies are pretty commoditized at this stage so that most people buy on price. There isn't really that difference between different brands and whatnot. And Amazon just went and undercut nappies and just kind of made their own brand and destroyed diapers.com and kind of bankrupted that company. So that was the example they brought up. And Jeff Bezos was, was very funny in his villain-type voice saying, oh, it was a 10 years ago. I don't quite remember any of that, which was a strange thing oh, to wow. say. But that's kind of the charge laid against them. And again, it's the question of Amazon has made this logistical, like, <laughs> I don't want to use the word miracle again, this logistical <laughs> like, uh, machine, right, that allows such amazing convenience for the user, but at what cost? Yeah, it's fascinating. And I have bought some of those Amazon Basics products. That's the line yes, that they release them under. So as as we're talking right now, Barry, my monitor is being powered by 
an Amazon Basics, uh, you know, DisplayPort adapter. And I guess for me, they are quite transparent about it. So there is Amazon branding all over it. But you're right, the, the, the price point there, obviously they have access to um, a load of metrics. So th they know what the consumer is willing to pay for a particular thing. They know um, ultimately, you know, they've got all access to all the reviews. They know what people are, are looking for in like salient points of a, of a particular product, um, as well as all the questions people have of, of a product. And, and so it does make them very, very well placed uh, to introduce their own goods. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting point. And I guess I'd never really thought of it um, in that way. And, and the concern that's coming, Chad, is with all these new voice speakers and voice activated devices, Amazon Alexa right. is kind of the market leader in that space. And so what people are kind of foreseeing is that one day when you're going to say to Amazon Alexa, hey, Amazon, please buy me some batteries, Amazon are going to be able to choose their own products over everyone sure. else, right? And that's going to be kind sure. of the, the very easy way for a consumer to shop. And so the question is, how do they do that fairly? And do they have to do it fairly? If, if Alexa is their products and they're very transparent about the fact that it is an Amazon yeah. Basics product, like what, where are the lines there? And that is the difficult thing with these things, is with these debates, is that there's so many gray areas. I mean, Amazon is a masterpiece of a business. It's kind of been built from the ground up into this behemoth that has done incredible things for logistics and kind of selling online. And where do you pull the reins in? It kind of feels like you've let the cat out of the bag already. Fascinating. And uh, to be honest, I actually think that feature is already there, Barry, on Amazon Alexa. When I was using Alexa in my home, um, that was the first feature I turned off because I've heard of these horror stories of inviting friends over and just for jokes, people go and actually just place orders using <laughs> their voices um, to these the most obscene type of goods um, that then arrive at your door the next day. And you're like, what on earth is this? So I think that capability is there. And, you know, that case study makes complete sense, especially for someone who is just trying to buy something at convenience. Um, and, and ultimately, why would they not point it the way of their products? That makes complete sense. So shall we move on then, Barry, to, to Google um, and, uh, you know, what the concerns were there? Yeah, so Google, of course, has probably the biggest monopoly of them all, Chad. I don't know if you, do you know anyone in your life who doesn't use Google as a search engine? Do you know any Bing people out there? I don't. I, I personally <laughs> don't trust Bing people. Um, <laughs> I, I, I definitely, definitely don't mean that. But uh, I mean, for me, whenever I get a new Windows system or anything like that, and you know, you come up and Bing comes up, the very first thing that I change on the system is the search engine. Um, we've just become so familiar with using Google. And uh, I guess as its product offering has evolved over time, not to be not just a search engine, but to be a whole lot more. Um, I mean, it's really hard not to kind of immerse yourself in all of the other various offerings because it just does add so much convenience and ultimately good quality product design. They also have their own products now too with, uh, with the Google Home offering as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's kind of talking to some of these concerns here is that this internet is supposed to be open, decentralized, anyone can put anything up. But if you've got a standard kind of gateway that's deciding what you see and what you don't see, that being Google, that's where the concerns yep. come. And so Google have got some, some sort of high 90% um, market share when it comes to search results. And they become incredibly good at it. Of course, that's how they made their money. That's what that's what they're known for. And the problem yep. is that there's been charges laid against them, similar to the Amazon case, about promoting their own stuff above other search results. So the search algorithm, of course, is very opaque. It's kind of a black box AI type algorithm that no one quite knows how it does what it does. And there's been lots of concerns raised in the yep. past about maybe Google putting its own restaurant reviews above, say, Yelp's reviews, or be able to put its own maps above other things, et cetera, et cetera. It might not sure. be a fair marketplace. <clears throat> Another concern yeah. raised against them is, is the advertising markets. 
So Google and Facebook dominate the advertising market with something like 80% between the two of them. And Google have this weird kind of monopoly where they control the buy side and the sell side, right? So they're engaging with all the small businesses to get them to advertise using Google AdWords. But then they're also brokering those relationships with various websites. So if, if I've got a blog that's doing quite well and I want to make some money on it, I go to Google and I plug into their ad center and then they will, they will figure out the ads for me and just pay me the commission on the other side. And so there's concerns yeah. there about can they do some sort of insider trading by artificially lowering the price on one side and raising it on the other side to give them a big margin in between. Now, of course, Sundar Pichai kind of denied all of this, but it's very hard to tell because there's no transparency and because there's no one else in the market who can do this. So you've got no competing forces that are fighting them on this. And again, it's, it's a very, very big issue for us because Google is the, the internet for a lot of us. I mean, a lot of us don't know anything yeah. else. And for, for, for advertisers and for small businesses, if you're not using Google, like where else do you go? There's no other option to advertise your stuff unless you're buying billboards and stuff, right? But on the internet, if you're not using Google and Facebook, you can't reach your audiences. And that I think is the key parallel through all of this. Is that these four companies control the eyeballs, control the attention of a vast population on, in, the, in the world, a vast majority of everybody. And when they do that, they have the ability and the incentive economically to play with that power and to try and like optimize it as best they can. And so what this Congress is trying to figure out is, is it time to try and break these guys up, number one? Or number two, if you can't break them up, how do you regulate them to ensure that the customers and the clients across all the various industries are treated fairly? And I think talking through these various companies, I'm hoping you can see the parallels between the four. And Chad, I think this is the beginning of quite a big change in regulation to think about how do we make it a fair and competitive environment for everybody without letting four major CEOs who are all basically billionaires at this point control so much of what information we receive, how we sell and how we buy products and how we feel as a result? I agree. I, I definitely agree. Um, I mean, just, just to quickly touch back on, on that AdSense point, Barry, um, I suppose there's an extra dimension there. So if you have ever used AdSense, um, you'll know that it works on a, a bidding system. So essentially what Google does is Google tells you, all right, you want to use this keyword. There is this demand for this keyword and this keyword is going to cost you X amount in this particular market. And so they're just telling you and you kind of, I suppose, blindly relying on the price, on the market price of that keyword. You're bidding to be able to have your ad go up on that, you know, on that uh, keyword. And so what they could also do, I suppose, is inflate the price of those bids um, without anyone ever being able to tell. And I guess that that's kind of where, you know, Google is a marketplace in itself. Um, it, it's also an interesting uh, point to, to kind of chat about. So, yeah, I, I think definitely not the end of this discussion. Loads more to, to unpack. Um, but, I mean, just in terms of taking power away from these uh, four particular giants, there are alternatives out there. There are other providers. There is the Bings of the world. There is the <laughs> MySpaces of the world. But we as users, you know, have, have grown to like and love these companies. Um, and so for me, I, I really do find it interesting how they're going to achieve this, um, especially when you have all of these millions and billions of users around the world who, who love their platforms. It's the big debate around capitalism, Chad. Like when you have a capitalistic society where you reward innovation, you reward these startups to grow yeah. fast and scale as quickly as you can, this is where you end up. And we kind of decided as a world that capitalism is the best system we can think of, right? It's definitely better than communism and whatever we've tried in the past. And so the question here is that how do we rein in the worst parts of capitalism? What we don't want to do yeah. is we don't want to overregulate this stuff so that innovators go elsewhere. 
So the America is very, very, very worried about startup founders who are young and are starting new things, who look at the regulation that is coming and say, oh, maybe I should go build in China or in the UK or in Australia. Hmm. They want to ensure they keep their, their best talent. And these companies are are big for a reason. They they have huge impacts and they've really done incredible things for users. I mean, they've changed all of our lives, if you think about it, in the way that we run our lives, in our access to information, our access to our social graphs and, and keeping in touch all around the world. And so there is no good and bad story here. It's not like a hero villain like we want it to be. It's very nuanced. It's very, very complicated. And to kind of pull out all these threads is going to be a real challenge of the next few years and trying to figure out what kind of capitalistic system do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a system where we just let the free market do its thing and we kind of accept the fact that there's going to be monopolies that grow over time? Or are we going to try and regulate it before it gets to that stage and potentially stifle competition or stifle innovation? And that's a question I don't know the answer to. Fascinating stuff. Well, we'll definitely keep our eyes peeled. Um, and uh, I mean, I certainly still need to go and watch just a little highlights clip of um, this this day in Congress um, because it definitely sounds like quite an eventful one um, that I think will you know enrich my experience on all of these particular platforms. Shall we move on then, Barry? Let's do it. Stuff I found interesting. Chad, we were chatting about Hamilton the other day, and uh, I was I was on a YouTube dark hole as I am way too oh. often these days. <laughs> and I found something called a Hamilton poker. Have you ever heard of that? Or polka? I don't know how to pronounce it. Have no, I have not heard of that. So no. I, I hadn't either. Apparently, it's a, it's a type of music. It's like a genre of music where the time signature is 2-4. So it's two beats in a bar. And the best right. way I can describe it is as circus music. Like if you imagine a circus music, like a very, very quick kind of a... Like that kind of music. That, okay. That's basically what polka is. And uh, I found what's called the Hamilton polka, which was a, a parody by a guy called Weird Al, which we'll chat about just now. And he yeah. basically took this very intense musical like we chatted about the other week and made it into this parody, right, of this, this polka basically sounds like a circus. And he put these medley together and it was like a five-minute piece. And I watched a reaction video of Lin-Manuel Miranda, the writer and creator of Hamilton, listening to it for the first time and him losing his mind because of how amazing <laughs> it was. And so it sent me down oh, this wow. rabbit hole of discovering who this musician is, a guy by the name of Weird Al Yankovic. And what I found out was that, Chad, he is the king of parodies. He is the king of right. taking a great song and turning it into an absolute fun, kind of jokey type song. And I've heard his name before, and I kind of knew he was famous, but never really looked into it, never knew anything about him. And when I dig into this, this polka and into what he does, I realized how talented a musician he is. I think we've all seen parodies in the past that kind of fall a little bit flat because maybe they, they're, a bit, they're a bit like dodgy or maybe they're not that funny or they're kind of just taking a, a dig at the people. Weird Al's yep. parodies are like works of art. Like he is a real musician. He's very, very talented. And he does these amazing things with popular songs that make you actually laugh out loud in a lot of the cases. And so I thought it was interesting to bring to your attention just a little bit of comic relief if you're looking for some uh, parodies of your favorite, awesome. your favorite rap songs. Weird Al is the way to go, Chad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, as soon as you mentioned his name, I've, I've heard it before. It's familiar to me. I'm on his Wikipedia page now trying to figure out why I know it or for which song it was or something. <laughs> it definitely is on the music front. Um, I don't know if it was a parody, though, that I've discovered him on. But when I am scrolling through this guy's Wikipedia page, he has done a heck of a lot of stuff. So oh, yeah. we're talking not just music. Uh, we're talking a little bit about 
I guess we've got live performances, we've got TV shows, uh, live television, we've got directing, writing, um, sort of other kinds of sorts of media. I mean, he was in quite a few TV shows as a voice artist. Um, so yeah, this guy is really, really uh, talented. I, I definitely need to get into some of this uh, Hamilton polka because that sounds really, really fascinating. Um, but I mean, he was actually even in Johnny Bravo, Barry. That's interesting. Uh, it, it makes total sense knowing his personality. I watched an interview of his and he's, he's a very kind of smart, evil, mad genius type, if that makes sense. Like right. he's very, very talented at what he does, but but very, very smart in the same way. And that's why I think he's he's kind of taken off. I mean, it sounds a bit weird. I'm sure the people who are a bit older than us are like, how did you not discover him earlier, right? Because he's been around for <laughs> such a long time. But for me, it's the first yeah. time I've found him. And his parodies are so well done. They, they're, not, they're not shabby at all. They're, they're works of art. And so I think he puts a lot of effort into these things and makes it look effortless at the end of the day. Um, some of right. the titles, Chad, he did a, a cover of Gangster's Paradise by Coolio and he turned it into Amish Paradise. Uh. He took Beat It from Michael Jackson and sang, Eat It, Eat It, a song all about food. <laughs> he took the, the famous Nirvana song, Smells Like Teen Spirit, and, and made a song called Smells Like Nirvana. He did Perform <laughs> This Way rather than Born This Way. And so if you're looking for some comic relief uh, this week, I know it's been a, a, I know everyone's stuck in lockdown, especially here in South Africa. Go and check out some Weird Al. I think there's some, some, some gems there, especially the Hamilton Polka chat. Amazing. Um, I, I, I'm still trying to figure out how I know him. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I'll get there eventually. While we're here, Barry, yes. I do want to little quickly chat about uh, one of the South African, uh, I guess, newly parody uh, musical. I suppose you, you could kind of mention him in the same vein here, and that is a musician by the name of The Kiffness. Have you been watching any of his lockdown uh, parodies? I've been loving them. I haven't, Chad. Tell me what, what he's been doing. You haven't? No. Uh, let me quickly pull up his page, and I can quickly uh, you know, mention some of the titles. But he's been doing basically the same thing, where he'll take a song uh, like, you know, Toto, Africa, and just combine it with these hilarious, hilarious lyrics that are completely, um, you know, suited to our current lockdown situation. And the thing is, he's actually, a, he's a great musician too. So he plays the saxophone. I've actually seen him Lond in London, funny enough, uh, playing for a band called Good Luck, which I'm sure you know I about. I love Good Luck. I've got a good, I've got a good luck story for you, Chad, just after this. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you, while I'm looking here, why don't you tell me your good luck story, Barry? Chad, what if I told you that I had slow danced with the lead singer of Good Luck <laughs> at a at a an impromptu concert outside the teenage jaw that we all used to love here in South Africa called Manhattan. What would you say to that, oh, Chad? I mean, that's a pretty good story, I'd say, Barry. <laughs> um, I I have got a photo with uh, this particular lead singer. Um, for anyone listening, wondering why we we talking about her, she's got an incredible voice. Um, but you know, she's she's. She's quite a pretty lady too. Um, so that's a that's a cool little story, Barry. Uh, <laughs> Nineteen-year-old Barry was very excited by Chad, and uh, I have vivid me I have vivid memories of of where she came into the audience and picked me for some unknown reason. And while we were dancing, she had the microphone over my shoulder, and she was still singing the song that they were playing. It was it was quite a moment. <laughs> Um, to be honest, I, I don't think I can do this justice by, by explaining it. Um, but I do think you should go and check out the Kipnis' page. I like I said, he's actually, he's actually a good musician as well. So his singing is really good. Um, I mean, he, he has one, one uh, parody song, which is, do you believe in life after lockdown? That's a sure song. <laughs> do you believe in love after all? That's the, the parody, of that, one, parody of that one. <laughs> 
Um, we've seen a whole a whole host of other ones. Um, so yeah, I'll definitely send that your way. Please Barry, do. Please do go do. and check it out if you're listening to this um, and want some some lockdown joy because the Kiffness is a great place to start. I will definitely check that out, Chad. I can't wait to to see what he's done because that sounds really cool. Moving on to some other lockdown joy, I found another really cool thing, Chad. You know those you know those times where you'll you'll fly somewhere and uh, you'll arrive at the airport that you've flown to and you'll wait for your baggage and it goes round and round and round and eventually you figure out your baggage didn't arrive and yeah. we all get very grumpy because we we've got all that that plane in us and we've been on this long flight and all we want to do is get to the hotel and uh, we we find out that our bag is in Cairo or still back in London or somewhere else in the world where it shouldn't be. And what I found out was that a lot of these bags just don't get claimed because if they can't get there quick enough, then often the airlines will just pay you kind of a, a damages fee because they can't figure out where the bag is. Um, and so there's 25 million bags a year that go unclaimed, which is a crazy number. Wow. And <laughs> I found this article talking about there's one company in the US that sells off this lost baggage as kind of no their stick. So they have about a million customers a year who come to this little, I think it's in Alabama, I think this little shop is. And basically they buy these bags in bulk from airlines, like sight unseen, not knowing what's in them, buy these bags, Mm. break the locks off, and then take everything out and sell them in their shop. And so it's become kind of a tourist trap for people to go and like do like a lost and found, kind of see what's in all these bags and buy random <laughs> bits and pieces. It's almost like those storage containers, Chad. I don't know if you've seen those reality shows where the guys will buy yep. a storage container not knowing what's inside. 100%. It's exactly like that. And I think it's fascinating. Yep. That is fascinating. That It's that kind of like bargain hunters type vibe. Yeah. And to be honest, I would be keen to go and do something like that. I would be definitely fun. be keen to go. And do <laughs> I'd feel really bad though. I'd feel quite guilty picking through someone else's belongings. Um, especially when you know sometimes those subsidies those fees um definitely don't cover the value of what's in the bag and uh yeah i mean it it certainly certainly is quite an interesting phenomenon a a good reason to go to alabama obviously just don't take any luggage yeah just go there and hope for the best (laughs) chad i have to read you some of the stuff they found because i found a list of the craziest things they've ever found so in the one suitcase, that a Gucci suitcase, they found full of Egyptian right. artifacts from 1500 BC, which is crazy. No ways. The original four-foot-tall hoggle puppet from the 1986 film Labyrinth, <laughs> if that means anything to you. An F-16 no, guidance system belonging to the U.S. Navy. So obviously the U.S. Navy wow. uh, would probably want that back, I'm assuming. A Nikon <laughs> camera from the NASA Space Shuttle program, which was a bit of a wow. strange one. A live rattlesnake. That wouldn't have been fun to find that. What? Vacuum packed frogs. A foul smelling bear hide. A rare violin. And a xylophone from Neil Diamond's 2008 (laughs) world tour. I'm not making this up. (laughs) Gosh, that is hilarious. Those are definitely some gems. Um, People certainly put strange stuff in their suitcases, don't they? Um, I don't know what I would have done if I bought the bag with the rattlesnake. My gosh, how could it still be alive after all that time? I I have no idea. It must be a very resilient rattlesnake. (laughs) (laughs) Resilient indeed. Um, Barry, one thing that I found interesting this past week was uh, a very, very quick one just to kind of just get your thoughts on. And that is on this this testing ability. In this COVID times, testing becoming the the key thing, I suppose. As soon as we get better visibility over what that numbers actually look like, as soon as you test enough. So I basically came across this uh, link today where there's a device that can give COVID results in 90 minutes. Now, for the current times, 
um, people can actually get results in you know one day, which I still think is really good. Right at the beginning, it took you know a lot longer than that. Um, but I mean, just to to think of you know the capability that this brings by being able to actually just test it in such a quick turnaround time. I suppose when you think about something like you know blood sugar levels, all of those kinds of things, those all of the various devices that we have you know been able to know someone who has used at a regular time in their lives to check insulin levels all of that kind of stuff um you know maybe these types of devices are going to be devices in the future uh, i hope i'm wrong but if there isn't a vaccine um to actually manage this uh, this virus yeah i think it's another great example of how the whole world's medical communities have come together in this crisis to try and figure out how do we how do we manage this thing right and like you say, without a vaccine, we have to be very, very on point with our testing and our contact tracing yep. and all that good stuff. So it's another great example about things getting better and better over time. I think the tests have got better as we've, we've figured out what mistakes we've made, how to make sure they are as cheap and affordable as possible and they can get the, as, as far around the world as they can. And we welcome every new innovation. So this kind of, if this kind of innovation can bring that time down in order to get that test result, it obviously means a lot to so quarantine even earlier than you would have been able to. So yeah, I think of course we have to remember the trade-off with cost here. So I'm not sure what this thing costs, but hopefully it's in, in an affordable range. And that could be very valuable for countries that are still going through the peak and still trying to control the major spread of the virus. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I suppose at this point, it seems like it's just still at that innovation phase. I guess it will get to that point where it's fairly um, accessible and, and fairly you know, cheap to to buy at large scale when we do eventually get there. But I think one of the things that a lot of people are going to like about this as well and for me, I think one of the, the key features as well is is how invasive it is. I don't know if you've seen, Barry, but um, you know I've seen lots of videos of people getting these things shoved right up to the top of their nostrils to get these into their brain. Uh, test results into their brain almost. <laughs> um, whereas this basically takes a very small swab from your nostril. Um, I don't think you need to go very deep as well, which I think you know will lead to a lot more people actually being willing to go and get this test done. Yeah, I hope so, Chad. I mean, I haven't been tested myself, so I can only live vicariously through those who have. But I have heard yeah. it's been quite a quite a nightmare and a very uncomfortable experience, to put it lightly. So anything that makes that a little bit more convenient, a little bit less painful, less annoying, is is a, is a boon because the more people get tested, the better. We've seen that all around the world. Absolutely, completely agree. Uh, let's then move on, Barry, to our next segment. Looking ahead. Alrighty, so this is a very, very quick one as well, Barry. We're just kind of flying through these uh, little <laughs> top notes, I guess. I found it quite fascinating uh, as we look at the way that the, I suppose, mobile payment space has evolved over time. A topic that we've also discussed, uh, I suppose, quite extensively on this podcast before as well. And I found it really interesting that Apple this past week has uh, apparently bought a startup that will be able to turn iPhones into payment terminals. Now, as things stand at the moment, iPhones are able to, I suppose, tender payment. iPhones are able to, you've got Apple Pay, which essentially lets you use the NFC technology um, to basically, I suppose, carry a card on your phone and be able to actually switch cards, which is, you know, amazing, amazing technology. That obviously evolved. We spoke about the uh, the public transport um, kind of extra add on there to add extra convenience. So you can literally just hop up to a gantry and put your phone there and not have to, you know, use your face ID or your touch ID to actually authenticate. And that brings extra innovation. But what is the next step? And I think this is the next step to, I suppose, encourage entrepreneurship in a widespread level, obviously to increase Apple's foothold on this payment space. Why not be able to use that NFC technology in the other direction? 
And I thought that was a really interesting purchase for Apple this week. I'm surprised it hasn't come sooner, Chad, because like, of course, that's been the roadmap for a while now. And we've seen some companies that have developed these pieces of hardware that you kind of use on top of the iPhone. So it plugs into the iPhone kind of charger and then becomes a payment yes, processor. Correct. Companies like Stripe yep. and Square are doing that in the States, at least I know. Sure. And so it makes all the sense in the world, like you say, to integrate Apple Pay with like a point-of-sale service with the iPhone. And especially the iPad, I'm assuming as well. I'm assuming we've got the same sort of thing. And so I'm surprised yep. it hasn't come sooner, but it makes all the sense in the world and just makes it more convenient and less friction points in that whole purchase experience. Um, I'm looking yep. forward to the day once, Chad, where we put our watch against the, the cashier's watch and that's all the payment is done, nothing <laughs> left to go. And uh, we're on the road to that kind of feature. Yeah, and I, I think certainly on the side of entrepreneurs and small businesses, um, I, ne- I know for a lot of people who do ever want to go this kind of electronic payment front, they end up having to pay a bank fixed fee for one of these uh, card units. They have to pay percentages on transactions in terms of commissions. And so I'm fascinated to see what the model will be in terms of Apple's side to actually collect as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, out of interest, if you're keen on the story, it's a company by the name of Moby Wave Inc. And that is the purchase that Apple made this past week. And from the looks of it, they paid about $100 million for the startup. Not small change, excuse the pun. Oh, but Chad, it's it's pocket change for Apple. Apple have got billions of dollars in cash. It's like Tim Cook did probably didn't even have to sign off on this. It probably was one of his lackeys who signed off on this kind of acquisition. <laughs> Apple have got so much cash in the bank, it is scary. Yeah, this is true. Let's then move on to our next segment. Develop and grow. Another very quick one. So last week we chatted about the short film that I put out and one that I was quite pleased about. Barry, you were pretty pleased about it too. I relied on you as my, I guess, filter before I, I put out <laughs> some of these videos that I'm less Your guinea sure pig. about. My guinea pig, exactly. And I'm, <laughs> I'm very, very grateful for that role. Um, but this past week, I've kind of, I suppose, evolved my, my thought on what YouTube is as a platform. So for a while, it has been a great place to upload videos and be able to share them at scale very easily to family and friends to literally be able to have this platform that you upload a video in any file format or you know any video file format get the compression to not have crazy data being consumed on the other side um, by your friends and family who consume it so for me that's what youtube was for a long period of time and to be honest recently i've just been chatting to creators i've been commenting on heaps of videos of things that i'm interested on i've been following these guys in their on their personal pages on whether it be instagram twitter whatever the case is and actually just opening up that dialogue. And YouTube for me has now become a lot more of a community. And I guess it has been a community for a long period of time. I just haven't been treating it that way. <laughs> but this past week, I reached out to uh, one of the creators that I respect quite a lot, uh, a guy by the name of Mitch Lally. And he's he's really good on the on the film stuff. Um, obviously, Fuji, we've already spoken about it. That's kind of one of my, one of my loves in the camera world. Um, and to be able to actually see what you can do with the camera. A lot of the guys just post footage straight out of the camera without any kind of decent post-production work whatever the case is and it, it looks fairly average so i appreciate him from from that front but basically i sent him this video and i asked him what are his opinions so this is a guy who's got i think 20 to twenty-five thousand followers on youtube um not massive but not small either um and i was really humbled by the amount of time that he spent on giving me feedback i think i was speaking to him for between half an hour and 45 minutes and the guy was just giving of himself without asking anything in return to somebody me who has you know nothing to add to his life in, in my mind i have 120 followers 
you know, I, I clearly am not going to help him anyway extend his goals further. Um, but he was very, very giving. And I think when it comes to the short film, I don't know if anyone has watched it. Um, but, you know, we, we, we chatted a little bit about the, the premise of it last week, Barry. But his very first question to me was, what is this about? What's the purpose of this film? And for the very first time, I had to actually think about it. I, I think I started on the wrong footing on this one. Now, on our previous case, Barry, you put together a script for me. And, you know, your script was very clearly thought out. He had a clear message there. Um, whereas, as a beginner in this space, I clearly hadn't done that thought work. And so I had three or four purposes in, the, in this film. It was a kind of a little bit all over the place when I, when I put it into words. And so I think that does come through in the videos. Um, and I was just really humbled by him being able to, I suppose, shed light on that. And also give me a couple of other tips um, in terms of you know, producing good film as well. So I wanted to just share some of his, his tips on the visual side as well. So we've now covered a little bit about the narrative. Obviously, I need some work to do on that front. Um, but just in terms of visual side, so for those of you who do like, um, you know, the, the kind of cinematic type videos, your first shot is really important. He did stress that. So, so really focus on your first shot. And what he said was bonus points goes to you if you can somehow incorporate that first shot as to your, into your last one. That's something that I've not really picked up on in previous videos that I've watched. But if I think back on it, it, it definitely is something that rings true. Sometimes when we can see a narrative play out and we can see a story, um, you know, run its full course, come full circle, um, ultimately, you know, something clicks in our mind and, and the, the idea comes across better. So, so that definitely makes sense. Secondly was every shot needs to convey new information about the scene or about the narrative. So people will get very bored by seeing the same kinds of shots over and over again. And so I think thinking about it this way when you are putting something together, does this shot actually convey anything new um, you know, on the previous one? Um, I think that that's definitely helpful information. And then lastly was just talking about the timeline. So if you've ever edited a video, um, you know, that timeline is ultimately, there's precious seconds there. That timeline is precious gold. And so I think what happens for a lot of us is we go out and we shoot all the stuff and we feel like we need to fit it all in. But what ultimately happens is we have too much. It's just too busy. You know, Barry, when we were doing our board course, ultimately we would be given a case study and we had to research things for a week. We may have spent two days researching one topic, getting to the actual exam, and they don't even ask it. Yep. And the tendency there is to throw in the stuff you've researched where it doesn't actually fit. And I was finding myself doing the exact same thing here. And so he just kind of brings us back to that. Every single second is precious and treat it that way. Um, you don't have to use every shot. Um, but yeah, ultimately, you need to think about that in that way. I love these tips, Jared, because there's so many parallels in all facets of creativity. So even if you're not a filmmaker, I remember going yeah. through a lot of the research from my book we chatted about last week, and, and I've read a lot yeah. about storytelling and kind of practice a lot of it over the years. And the kind of three-act structure that you mentioned is very important to be able to tie up all the loose ends from your beginning to the end. That's yeah. classic storytelling theory, right? And making <laughs> sure that every little piece advances the plot or advances the story yeah. It's classic storytelling theory. And so I think right. it's a reminder for all of us, anyone who's doing something creative, there's so much value in doing a little bit of research and learning how stories are told effectively. And these kind of tips can apply across whatever medium you're in. So whether you're writing, whether you're talking, whether you're making films, whatever the story is, everyone is telling that story. 
and even in a sense in your own life. So even if you're not making something, if you're trying to convince your significant other of something, if you're trying to tell a story at a bri, if you're trying to influence someone in your family, it's it's all the same stuff. It's like how do you emotionally connect at the beginning of something? How do you make sure you don't waste any time and you kind of, like you say, get rid of the stuff that isn't really pushing the plot forward yep. and you maybe are too attached to it? And how do you make sure it's tight and has a real purpose that has a clear call to action at the end? And that kind of thinking only comes with practice. And that's why I love this yep. chat is that you're willing to put yourself out of your comfort zone and ask someone who doesn't have to be nice to you, right? He's got no obligation to, to tell you that you're yeah. great. And he gives you this real good feedback that will help you going forward. Um, and so when you sent me the screenshots, I was very, I was very happy because that's exactly the kind of thing that we all need in our lives. And, and yep. practicing better storytelling will make you better in everything that you do, whether it's public speaking, whether it's talking at a boardroom, whether it's trying to lead a team at work, whether it's making a YouTube video, the, the kind of principles will go across every single medium you can think of. 100%. And uh, you're completely right. His feedback was candid. His feedback was straight out. When I mentioned all of what I thought my film was about, he straight up said, well, I didn't get that from it. Yeah. And so I think there is something really important there to be said about getting external third-party feedback. Often we've, you know, we'll, we'll show things to our friends and a lot of the time, even this podcast as well, a lot of our listeners are our friends. Um, and so it is ultimately trying to get uh, third parties to give you some feedback that is, uh, I guess, constructive um, and, you know, be able to actually reflect on it from from an outsider's point of view, which which I think is really important. So if whatever your, you know, creation preference is in life, try and get that. Try and get that external feedback. Um, I think there are heaps of forums out there. There's loads of people who are wanting to voice their opinions, sometimes a little bit too much. <laughs> um, but it's out there. So definitely do go out and actively look for it. Yeah, definitely. That's where the internet really comes into its own, right? The internet has yep. allowed this community and allowed you to connect with literally anybody around the world. So take advantage of it. And like Chad says, like go outside of your friends and family. I think I, I mentioned to you at the beginning of this podcast process, Chad, that my biggest fear was that we'd never escape our friends and family and everyone be like, oh, yep. this is amazing. Yep. But in order to yep. get better, we have to be getting our stuff in front of people who don't have a relationship interest with us and they can be really yep. candid with us. And that's what we try and do with our episodes. And so, yeah, hopefully you guys listening can take that into your own life. Um, that honest feedback hurts sometimes and it's easy to get defensive, yeah. yep. but it's so important and that's how you grow and that's how you make sure you're not in your own little bubble where you think you're amazing, but the actual marketplace out there doesn't agree. 100%, Barry. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, so that, I think, brings us to a close of uh, yet another great episode. We do have one tiny little thing to, to chat about and that was the... Our very first, I suppose, interactive piece on our uh, social media pages. And that was a hilarious little clip that we released <laughs> um, this past week um, about the, the, the question that I asked Barry um, in, in terms of his book. And if you still don't know, if you've listened to the episode, you still don't know what I was talking about. Um, that was the moment I asked Barry about the raunchy scene. <sighs> um, and his reaction there was just flawless i just love that clip without my voice um you, you, you basically you, you just hear your reaction firsthand and and i just thought it was fantastic so barry do you want to talk us through uh, some of the responses um or shall we shall we just throw a little snare drum there and announce the winner let, let, let's 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 name all the honorable mentions <laughs> and then we'll give the right. snare drum for the winner how about that chad Let's do it. I'll let you pick. Ooh, okay. So lo lots of good suggestions here. Of course, uh, we're talking about how would you caption that video. Let me think here, Chad. 
I'm going to give an honorable mention to um, my sister, believe it or not, Angela. <laughs> congratulations. But she kind of cheated though, Chad, because she gave like four or five okay. different answers. But we're going to let her right. go. The best one out of the four <laughs> answers were, um, have you ever gotten lost because your maps weren't working? And the reason that is the greatest is because oh. I am well known for having terrible sense of direction. And without maps, <laughs> I will not get anywhere. If there was no Google Maps, Chad, you would not be seeing me here today. I'd be lost in some forest somewhere. And oh so that's gosh. probably the most relevant for that clip, I think, for an honorable mention. Okay, that that's interesting because that definitely does tell me uh, a point of view that I never knew. So um, <laughs> that's great, actually. And uh, you're not alone. I'm not. I'm not amazing myself. All right. So let's. Uh, I, I've just been wanting to to push as many jingle buttons as possible, Barry. So let let's do it. The uh, the, the, the the funniest one that we thought was. Are you go for it. Mr. Jeremy Carr, all the way in Singapore, um, who said to us, how many drinks did we have last night? Who obviously thought that we had gone on a bender and I was being ashamed for all my drinking. So to Jeremy over in Singapore, you are the winner. Thank you so much, my man. I miss you a lot, dude. I haven't seen you in a long time, but so glad that you sent your submission and uh, hopefully lots more to come, Chad. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to give a quick honorable mention as well. Probably the most factual of the guesses to <laughs> Natasha, who said something about girls. Um, so again, another another honorable mention there. But thanks everyone for submitting answers. And uh, we'll certainly be doing a lot more of this in the future. So do check out all of our social media pages. Again, if you've never checked any of them out, that's all good. Uh, I'll let you know quickly what the links are. So we are on Twitter at across underscore podcast. On Instagram at Across the Pondcast, and lastly on Facebook at Across the Pond Podcast. And that brings an end to a jam packed episode. Number 39 was filled with lots of good stuff. I hope you got some value out of it. We hope we'll see you again, same time, same place next week for yet another episode of Across the Pond. Pond, pond across the pond.